We're so glad you've joined us here on this 4th of July weekend. I hope you've all had just a fantastic weekend with family and friends. And we appreciate you being here, taking time out to come and worship the Lord with us today. We are, uh, as we're celebrating our freedom as Americans, we're also in the middle of a series we're calling Free. It almost sounds like we planned it. Well, maybe we did, okay? And, uh, you know, we've been celebrating our freedom in Christ and celebrating the freedom that God gives us and, and what that means to be free and to be truly free of some of the things that maybe have kept us back from moving forward in our spiritual walks. And so we're so excited about you being here with us. And what I've been praying for many of you, as I know that there are great hurts in this room. I know there are great things that many of you are going through and things you've been carrying for your li- throughout your lifetime that really have been things that have kind of imprisoned you and kind of bound you up. One of the things I've really been praying for you is that in this series, that maybe even today, this would be like an independence day for you spiritually, where you would find some freedom in Christ from some of those particular things. And so we've really been praying about that for you as we've been looking at this powerful, powerful subject in this part of the series on forgiveness. And what does forgiveness mean? And what does that look like in our lives? And how do we appropriate that in our lives and find that kind of freedom? And we talked about what forgiveness is and what it's not. And, and throughout the series. And if you haven't been here, I urge you to go back and listen to some of those to really just find some clarification, further clarification, more than anything about what it is and what it's not. And we'll kind of, we'll kind of hit some of that a little bit today, but uh, we're just glad that you made it here today. Uh, a, a little over, not quite a year ago, my dad and I, who, my dad's in our church and he was in the first service this morning. My dad and I, we went to the movie, okay? And now you need to understand, my dad and I go into the movies, that just never happens. That, that hadn't happened since I was a kid because Pops doesn't go to the movies, okay? But Pastor Randy introduced me to the movie theaters with the recliners in them. Has anybody else been to that, okay? That is greatness right there. And so I told my dad about the recliners, all right? And I said, you know, you've got a lot of space and you can kind of even lay down in them, you know? It's really crazy throwing popcorn on yourself and all this good stuff. You know, in fact, I love those seats. I mean, that may be something we want to entertain in our next church building, right? I don't know if anybody's in that, but some of you have enough trouble staying awake as it is, so that's out, okay? But uh, so I told my dad about that, and and I was like, you know, let's go see this movie. I heard it's going to be a really good movie, a great story. We went to see the movie Unbroken, okay? And I don't know, some of you may have seen the, the movie. Some of you have read the book. I know my wife has read the book, and Randy's wife has read the book, and uh, told us how much the movie really left out, okay? But I want to talk about that for just a minute. It's the, it's the life story of the man uh, named Louis, and, and he was called Lucky. That was his, his nickname, Lucky Zamperini, okay, Louis Zamperini, and when it, whenever he was a kid, his his family immigrated to to America from Italy, and he was he was the second of four kids. Grew up into this Italian American family here. They became Italian Americans, and as they immigrated, and they moved to California, and. Whenever they moved to California, as he was a young kid, and, and again, if you've seen the movie, read the book, you know his story. You know that he kind of grew up and was teased a lot because of his Italian accent. He was in a lot of fights. He got into trouble a lot with the law. They gave him the nickname Lucky because he was so good at evading arrest, okay? Because he was always in trouble. Started even drinking early as a kid. Just always in trouble and always running. And in the process of his running all of the time, his older brother discovered that he was an incredibly gifted, actual gifted runner, 
okay? And he becomes this distance runner and excels in so many different ways in, in this particular sport, so much that he ends up going to the Olympics in 1936. He is a, this incredibly talented, gifted runner, that, that, uh, this distance runner that was so gifted. He was the youngest uh, that was there in the 1936 Olympics. And Adolf Hitler was so impressed by Zamperini's final kick in his race, Hitler wanted to meet him after the race and go and shake his hand. I mean, so people were impressed by that. That's something that's really interesting about his story. After World War II erupted, though, Zamperini, who was, had been training for the, the next uh, Olympics in 1940, he, he goes ahead and he enlists in the military and becomes this, this airman in the military and becomes a bomb, bombardier. And in April 1943, right in the midst of the war, and we've already, in, the United States has engaged Japan, and, and so World War II, excuse me, two is raging, okay? I'm not trying to start anything. World War II is raging. Raging, everything is just really going on at this particular time. He is out on a flight looking for another plane that has gone down, and his plane goes down, has engine failure. They crash in the Pacific Ocean. And I I just want you to start, if you don't know his story, hearing all the things that happened to this guy, all right? And you wonder why they call him Lucky, okay? He crashes in the Pacific Ocean, he survives the crash. But he and two other of his, of his fellow airmen there survived by, on a raft for 47 days in the Pacific Ocean, surviving off of what they could catch, some of the fish that were circling, uh, some of the smaller sharks. Shark Week starts this week, just saying, okay? And some of the sharks that, that were, were circling the raft, uh, some birds. And, I mean, this is just an incredible thing that he even survives at this point. 47 days. I want you to think about that. 47 days at sea, and uh, Japanese planes are going over, shooting at them at different times, survives all of that, but a Japanese boat comes by, a patrol boat comes by, captures them, and then he becomes not lost at sea anymore, but now he becomes a prisoner of war. And now his life really is going to continue just to progress and all of this stuff that happens in his life. He is, uh, is picked up by the Japanese and they transfer him and they tell him this, that he is going to uh, a place called Execution Island. Boy, isn't that a blessing to you to hear that that's what you've been delivered into, Execution Island. And while he's there, he, he was this prisoner of war that was abused and beaten on a regular basis, daily by the Japanese prison guards. The prisoners were forced to, the, the food that they provided for them was, was rice that was infested with, with rat droppings and maggots. I mean, they, just terrible stuff that, that they would undergo as being these prisoners of war. And they would transport them around to different camps. Some of these camps were not known by the Red Cross, so they were especially abusive to these prisoners that were at these, these particular camps. And he, the last camp that he was transferred to was where he would encounter a man who would abuse him so savagely throughout his life that he would be haunted by this man throughout most of his life. And that man's name was Matsuhiro Watanabe, also known as, again, those of you that know the story, he was known as what? The Bird. This was his nickname that was given to him. The bird was this brutal kind of psychopathic kind of killer who would take great pleasure in torturing Zamperini specifically because he was an officer. 
and he was jealous of him. And so he would take great pleasure in brutalizing him. He would, he would force the other prisoners to, to hit each other and to fight with one another. Just, 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 he would kind of get off on this. And, and so on one occasion, he made, he made uh, the, the prisoners come and punch Zamperini. 220 of them punched him in the face over and over and over again. You can imagine just the, the, just the torment that this man went through. On another occasion, the bird made him hold a six-foot beam. It's kind of that iconic picture that we've seen. The six-foot beam that he's just forced to hold over his head uh, as long as he possibly can, you know. And he's in this famished state, and he holds it up there for 37 minutes longer than anybody else had done that. And it was out of defiance to the bird saying, you will not break me. You'll do all of these things to me, but I will not be broken, right? And finally, the bird comes over and knocks him out. Because he was just continuing to hold that up. As the, as the war escalated, and as the tide of the war was turning in the favor of the United States, uh, the, the abuse escalated even further. And Zamperini, finally at the end of the war, whenever it concluded with the United States victory, he was released. And the movie ends there, but you need to understand that the story doesn't end there. I mean, that's really not even... Just touching just the tip of the iceberg of what happened in this man's life. When he returned to the United States, I know the title of the book and the title of the story is Unbroken. But you need to understand something that when he returned to the United States, he was a broken man. He was broken emotionally. He was broken spiritually. He maybe, uh, sur- you know, survived in the sense of not being broken physically. But you need to understand he was greatly broken. And although he was no longer a prisoner in this Japanese prisoner of war camp, he was indeed a prisoner to his past. He was a prisoner to his past. He was a prisoner to all the hurt that had been inflicted upon him as he had been savagely beaten and mistreated for so long. All the hurts, all the anger. Now he was a prisoner to his own bitterness towards his Japanese captors, specifically the bird. It was the one that he hated the most. So Louis turned to alcohol, and no matter how much he partied, no matter how much he drank, and he did quite a bit, it would always end with him passing out somewhere. But he would always go back to the place of that torment of the bird. That's where he would go back to. And he was carrying this bitterness in his heart. After one blackout, whenever he kind of came to, he realized that he was literally choking his wife to death. He literally was choking her when he came to. And, and, and it, just the post-traumatic stress that this man went through. And he realized that he was more lost now than he had ever been. He was more a prisoner now than he had ever been a prisoner before. His wife turned to Jesus Christ and found Christ in her life at a Billy Graham again event and pleaded with him to come with her to the event. He resisted for some time because he grew up very skeptical of those kinds of events. But he finally gave in because she was going to leave him because he, he had become just this bitter person that she just couldn't even be around because of his bitterness so much. And he finally reluctantly went 
in order more than anything to save his marriage. And on an October evening, as Billy Graham was preaching the gospel message of Jesus, Jesus Christ got a hold of Zamperini's heart. And he experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus that you have experienced in your life. And it changed his life and it gave him a new mission in life. He said he felt like he was the one that Billy Graham was preaching to on that particular day. And he experienced the forgiveness of Christ. And his new life mission was to express that forgiveness and to talk about that forgiveness as much as he possibly could to others. And that's what led him to eventually confront his former captors and to forgive them. And so in 1952, at Sagamo Prison, home to 850 war criminals, including all of his tormentors. He embraced all of them and talked about the forgiveness of Christ in his life, and he extended and offered forgiveness to them for how they had treated him. All of them except for one. The bird was not there. The bird became number 23 on America's most wanted list. He had disappeared two days before the Japanese surrender, and it was not until the late 1990s that that uh, Louis Zamperini was actually able to even have an opportunity to confront this man who had done this to him in his life. But I don't have a video of that. But what I do have is is a video that I want you to watch of what God did in Zamperini's life and the testimony that he had even up until this last year. He died last year at 97 years old. I want you to watch this video and I want you to see what God did in his life. Okay, this is a letter I wrote to Mr. Shiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. I was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. Amen. Love replaced hate. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Louis, we are so honored once again. Thank you so much for being here with us today. What an honor to have you with us and your testimony, your story is such an inspiration to so many of us. What? So come on, yeah. church, let's thank Mr. Louis Zamperini for being yeah. here with us here today. That's an American hero, right? That's a true American hero whenever you see this. And he has a legacy not of bitterness any longer. In fact, his son Luke, he has a son also named Luke. And this is what his son Luke said about his father. Louis Zamperini, he said, he was the most joyful man I have ever known. I started thinking about that. I was like, wow, in spite of everything that he went through in his life, 
rather than a legacy of bitterness, which very easily could have been the legacy that was left, what did he say about his father? He said he was the most joyful man that I've ever known. I said, what was it that changed this man from a bitter, angry alcoholic, this man who now was the most joyful man that his son had ever known? What was it that changed his life? And folks, it comes down to this word we've been talking about. It is forgiveness. It's forgiveness, the forgiveness we find in Christ And then the forgiveness that we begin to apply in our life and extend to others who have hurt us. And we've been talking and working through that in this month of June. And we've been talking about that kind of freedom that that whenever we release our offenders and we take them off of our hook of justice and we put them on God's hook of justice, we are then free to be the people that God has created us to be rather than being in torment to our past and allowing that kind of to continually perpetually torment us over and over and over. It's not that the hurt wasn't real. It's not that it's not still something that you deal with at certain times in your life, but you have taken that off of your hook and put it onto God's hook. And now you're free. You've canceled that debt that was owed to you so that you can be free. And I've been saying this every single week. I want to say it again to you. Our kids need us free, right, church? I mean, they need us to be free. And if you're a grandparent, your, your grandkids need to see freedom in your life. They need to see that you have, that you have understood what that means in your particular life and, and what you've gone through. They need to see that modeled in their life. And that's why Louis Zamperini could leave a legacy of forgiveness was because he was free. He was free, and now because he was free, now he had joy. Now he had peace. Now he had all of these things that Jesus has provided for him through, through uh, the forgiveness of Christ. So we've been working through the book of Philemon, and we're in the last few verses here. So turn there with me if you're not there. For those of you who haven't been here, that book is a 20, it's just 25 small, it's just short little verses. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And he wrote it to a man named Philemon. And Philemon was a person that, that Paul had led to Christ and had had a great influence in his life. Philemon was a leader in the Colossian church. He was there in Colossae. He had a church that met in his house. And so he was a great spiritual leader in Colossae, okay? And now he also had a slave that was a runaway named Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away. This isn't a book about slavery. We're not going to get hung up on that. We know that that's wrong. We know that it's not right. It doesn't endorse that. But here's the deal. It, it, the context of it is that there was a slave that had run away. That was very common in this time in the world. Uh, to, uh, slavery, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at that particular point. There were more slaves than there were people that were free. Okay, But Onesimus ran, uh, ran away. He ran away, and when he had run away, he most likely had stolen some things from Philemon. So he defrauded him. He fractured their relationship. He most likely, Philemon was a, was a good master to him, but he had fractured their relationship. When Onesimus left, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Christian, okay, whenever he left and whenever he fled. But he had an encounter with the Apostle Paul in Rome. Through God's providence, he meets Paul. Paul does what Paul does best. He shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Paul disciples Onesimus while he's even in prison there. He disciples him as best as he can. They realize that they both know Philemon. And he knows that Onesimus is the one who defrauded Philemon. And there's this fracture in the fellowship there. And maybe even a bitterness that that, that he knows that Philemon maybe was carrying towards Onesimus. But now he has two sons 
sons that are in the Lord now. And he wants them to reconcile. He wants them right with each other. So what he encourages Onesimus to do is to go back to Philemon to make restitution where possible, to seek forgiveness. And so Paul's going to write a letter that would hopefully reconcile these two brothers that were now that had been at odds because of the offense that that Onesimus had that had committed against Philemon. So he writes this letter to Philemon to show mercy, to offer forgiveness, to reconcile. Now remember, we've talked about reconciliation and how it's different from forgiveness. It's not exactly forgiveness. Forgiveness is a one-way street. It's where you take that person off of your hook and you put them onto God's hook, and 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 it's more between you and God than it is anything else. Whenever there's reconciliation, there is a person who is repentant, genuine repentance. And they're coming and they are sorrowful. And there's a person who is a forgiver. And that is what brings reconciliation. It's not always possible because you don't always have a genuinely repentant person. But you're still on the hook with God for forgiving. God has still mandated us to forgive and to take those folks off of our hook and to put them on to his. We've learned that forgiveness is really releasing a debt. That's what the word literally means, to release a debt. It's taking them off our hook. It's canceling the debt. That's why whenever someone hurts us, that's why we say things like, I'll get even, or you're going to pay for this. What we're saying is, you owe me. You owe me something. So what we're saying when we forgive is, I cancel that debt. You're doing yourself a huge favor whenever you do this. Remember this, we've been learning. It's not contingent upon an apology. You may never get an apology. You know what? Zamperini never got an apology from the bird, but he still offered forgiveness. He set himself free. You see what I'm saying? He set himself free. It's releasing that debt. I heard one pastor put it this way. Forgiveness is a promise. Forgiveness is a promise. It's a promise never to take revenge. It's the opposite of the refusal to forgive, which is a promise to seek revenge. Last week, we read where the Lord told us to to not seek revenge. He said, it is mine to avenge, not yours. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the one that settles the scores. You release them into my care. And so whenever, whenever we forgive, we're kind of making this promise or this statement of love that says, I am choosing to no longer hold anger bitterness and hatred against you my offender i am releasing you of that i release you and just like zamparini spoke of in his letter that he wrote towards the bird forgiveness we've noted is the most godlike and christ-like thing as a believer that you can do because christ has forgiven us and canceled a debt that we could never pay right he paid our debt but forgiveness is perplexing to the world It's something that when we talk about, oftentimes it's so perplexing to the world and the Lord will often use this in our lives to overcome the evil that has happened in our life. So it's perplexing. And we learned that in Philemon that a forgiving believer, first of all, is one that deeply loves the Lord as we progress through the text. He loves the Lord. He's in relationship with God. And not only does he love the Lord, he loves people around him. And so he's motivated to forgive. And he's not only a lover of God and a lover of people, he's one who has genuine faith that he puts into action, right, as we progress through the text. Last week, we talked about reconciliation and that there, to reconcile, there must be an openness to God first, to listen to God speaking to our life. Then there's an openness to listen to our repentant offender if that is possible, okay? Sometimes it's not possible. 
and we listen to them and we allow God to speak into our life, we also learn this, that, that we trust in the sovereignty of God to even work in the midst of all this hurt that's happened in our life, that God is still sovereignly at work just as he was with Philemon and Onesimus. And we learn that where restitution should be made, it, it should be made for those who is uh, the person who is the, uh, the offender. Restitution should be made if possible. But here was the situation. It was impossible here. And so we're going to look at this big question right here. Onesimus couldn't make restitution. It wasn't possible. So the big question that we get as pastors all the time, a question I've grappled with at certain times in my own life where I was dealing with hurt and pain that someone else caused me, is this question right here. Why? Why should I forgive? Why should I forgive this other person, okay? And we've been saying in the initial stages, and and we still stand by this, Forgive because you do yourself a huge favor, and that still stands true, okay? But I want to dig in a little deeper to some further motivations for forgiveness in our lives. Why should we forgive? When we hear stories like Zamperini's, I mean, it really, we see this as a person who forgives like that. It's heroic, right? We see this as it's brave, it's bold. But at the same time, as believers who have been here, and many of you have been Christians for a long time, just as I have been, Forgiveness should be more the norm in our life than the exception. The longer we, or the the more we grow in Jesus Christ and we become more like Christ, it should be more normal for us as Christ empowers us to do this than it be the exception in our life, okay? We should be more known and have a reputation for being a more merciful kind of person because we're reflecting the character of Christ that lives within us, okay? A lot of times we think as a believer it's more kind of the exception, but as we grow in the Lord, it should become more the norm. It should be more what our kids see in us. It should be more what our spouse sees in us, that we're more forgiving. As we grow in Christ, it should become more the norm to be a merciful kind of person with others around us. And I'm just going to say, I've struggled with this. I know some of you are still struggling with this. And, you know, we're struggling together. But the Lord, what he's trying to teach us in this series is that, church, we have got to grow up in this area. We need to grow and learn how to do this more because God wants to use this not only in your life as as, as we've been talking about, but God wants to use it in the lives of others around us as we're going to see. So let's talk about some motives for forgiveness. Why should I forgive? Number one, if you're taking some notes, write this down. Our motives for forgiveness is first, I realize I owe a debt. I owe a debt that I really could never repay. I owe some debts. There are spiritual debts that I owe to other people that I could never pay these back. And so what he's saying is take that into consideration. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says to him, Paul writes, So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. In other words, Philemon, you treat him as you would treat me. Treat Onesimus as you would treat me, the apostle Paul. Verse 18. If he has wronged you in any way, or he owes you anything, okay, so he's, he's acknowledging that there is definitely a debt that is owed. If he owes you anything, charge it to me. And then in verse 19, Paul's going to say this. I, Paul, I write this with my own hand. Say it with me, church. What does he say? I will what? Repay it. I will repay it. He's saying there's definitely a debt that is owed to you. We're not saying that you're not owed. 
you are definitely owed this particular debt. There's no doubt about this. Now, the reason that's kind of all in caps there, and it's like that in my Bible as well, is because when Paul would, would, oftentimes he would dictate a letter to someone else, and they would kind of take it down and write it. Paul, at this particular instance, would pick up the pen, and he would write and sign his name to authenticate that and write that there so that they would know that it was from him. Oftentimes, it was in larger letters because he is thought to have had very poor vision, okay? And that was, many think that was his thorn in the side there that he had this and so he's writing this and he's saying i am authenticating this this is your iou all right i'm going to pay it back because here's the thing onesimus doesn't have anything to give you what he stole from you he probably already spent he doesn't have anything but still i'm calling you i'm calling upon you philemon to forgive him i will satisfy the debt that he owes that he could never repay he says i will repay it and now my favorite part in the whole in the whole series right my favorite part what does paul say i will repay it and I won't mention to you that you owe me your own very soul, okay? And I just think of, I think of Philemon probably laughing when he read that because he knows Paul's personality. His personality is coming out. I won't mention it, but I'm going to mention it, okay? I'm going to bring this up because I want you to think about the fact that you owe also. That you owe greatly, You owe others in your life. You owe me, the Apostle Paul. I'm the one that shared the gospel with you, Philemon. And your life has been forever changed. You are spiritually indebted to me. That's what Paul is saying. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to hold this over you. I'm just trying to teach you something here is what he's saying to Philemon. I want you to consider, yes, you've been wronged by Onesimus. There's no doubt that he owes you materially and he could never pay that back. But you owe me spiritually. And you could never pay that back. Your family's different now because of me. And in the beginning of the book, he mentions his wife, Athia. And then he also mentions his son. His son is thought to have become one of the pastors. His whole family was transformed because the gospel that Paul presented to him. And he's saying, I want you to take this into consideration. You are different and changed. And you owe me a spiritual debt. He owes you a material debt, but you owe me even greater. So put it on my account. And then what he's saying, put it on my account and then cancel it, okay? Because, because you owe me is what he's saying. I want to personalize this for you, okay? I was thinking about this this week, and this is truly whenever I started thinking about just all the people that I really owe, that I owe greatly. I mean, I start with my mom and dad. They were in the first service this morning. I owe so much to them that I can never repay. I owe so much to my mom and dad who, who brought me up after I was eight years old. They brought me up in the Lord. They took me to church at that point. But then I came to know Christ. The Lord changed my life. My mother's the one that shared the gospel with me. They, they loved me. They brought discipline into my life whenever I needed that. They, you know, they, they brought discipleship in my life. Whenever I decided to uh, become uh, someone that would go into the ministry and I felt like God was, was calling me into ministry, I was the first one in all of our family anywhere to ever go into the ministry in any kind of way like that. And I didn't know how they were going to respond to that when I was talking to that. I come from a long line of cops, okay? And I didn't know how that was going to go over, but they supported me. They supported me in college. They supported me in my seminary days. They've always come alongside me. They supported me when we started the church. I owe my parents spiritual debts I can never repay. And I was thinking about that this week. My wife was in the second service. She was sitting on the front row up here in the second service. And I was thinking how much I owe my wife spiritually that I can never repay. 
that hope has loved me and has supported me and has come alongside me whenever whenever I was in seminary. She was the main breadwinner in our family because I was going to school most of the time. When I told her that I felt God that like God was calling us to start a church, and I didn't know how we were going to make it financially. I don't know, but I feel like God's leading us. She followed me. She supported me. She's loved me. She's come alongside me. She's forgiven me in so many different ways. I owe her spiritual debts that I can't even begin to talk about. I mean, that just I owe her so much. I was thinking about my kid, my son Luke, and my kids. Luke's in this service. Trinity was in the last service. I owe them so much. Because they're fantastic kids. And they love the Lord. And you know, and I was thinking about this. They didn't choose life in the fishbowl. They were born into it by being in a pastor's family. He didn't get to choose that. But he handles it. He's not a perfect kid, but he handles it with so much grace. And I owe him so much. I started thinking about friends that supported me whenever I was in, had been in some of my darkest times. And they came alongside me and were great friends to me. I owe my sister-in-law. I owe the, her family. I owe my, my brother-in-law, Dan. I owe so many people so much of a spiritual debt. I started thinking about educators that poured into my life. And I started thinking of how they taught me and how I owe them. I started thinking about some of my youth group workers and how they poured into my life. And I wouldn't be who I am today if they not confronted me and loved me and spoke truth into my life. I started thinking about our incredible staff and how much I owe them. We have a great staff, right, church? Amen? We have an, a, just a wonderful staff. I started thinking about Pastor Randy and what a, just a blessing he is in my life just not only professionally, but as a friend and how I was at a point about six years ago where I was ready. I was just so burned out in ministry. Nobody had done anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. I was just tired. I was tired and I didn't know if I could carry on and continue any longer. And the Lord brought Pastor Randy along and was just a, been a great friend to me and refreshed my soul. And now we share in the ministry together and partner together. And I love that. I, I'm indebted to our congregation, you. I'm indebted to you because you've loved me and you've supported me. You've prayed for me. You've been alongside me. Not to mention you pay my wages. I'm indebted to you, okay? You see what I'm saying? And I want you to start thinking about all the different people that you know that you are spiritually indebted to. And that is what he's saying. Paul's saying, yes, he owes you, but I want you to start thinking and put it in perspective about how much you owe others, not to mention how much we owe Jesus, and we can never repay that, right? Jesus canceled the debt. He canceled the debt. So begin thinking about that today. Who, to whom do you owe for impacting your life? That's a good practice is what Paul is saying. I want you to think about that. Start thinking about this. And Paul's genius in writing this is he's saying, yes, he owes you, but you owe me so much more. And don't forget that. Don't ever forget. I don't want to force that on you, but I want you to keep in mind as you forgive. And then here's the other thing. I'm motivated to forgive when I realize I bless others. I bless others through my acts of forgiveness. I don't only just bless myself and set myself free, but I really bless others around me who are in my life when I choose forgiveness. Just like Zamperini's son said, my dad, he, he's the most joyful man that I've ever known. His son was blessed because of the legacy of forgiveness. When I ch- choose this bold act, I become a, a act, I b- become a blessing. Verse 20, look at what he says to him. He says, yes, my brother, please do me this favor. Paul's saying, you're going to refresh me. You're going to be a blessing to me. 
When you do this very thing of forgiving, do this for the Lord's sake. Give me, he says, this encouragement that I need in Christ. I'm an old man in chains is what he's been saying through the whole thing. You will refresh me and encourage me, Philemon, if you forgive Onesimus. In verse 7, he said earlier, your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. And he's saying, show that kindness, that same kind of kindness to Onesimus, and you will refresh the church at Colossae as they see you model that in your life. He's saying, and he uses this play on words. Remember, Onesimus' name literally means useful. He's saying, would you now, Philemon, become useful by forgiving, by forgiving him, and God will bring blessing into my life. It will impact me, and I need this right now. On the flip side, if you choose not to forgive You're going to burden yourself. Remember we said that whenever you choose not to forgive, we said this in week two, you end up burdening yourself. You become imprisoned to your past. You become bitter, which means you have a toxic heart, which means your toxic heart is going to produce toxic speech that's going to spew over into other people's lives. And so if you're bitter, that's coming out of your life. That's what others are getting from the bitterness that maybe they didn't even cause you, but they're the recipients of your bitterness. Okay, And we also said you invite Satan really to come and do a work in your life and gain a foothold whenever he says he'll gain a foothold whenever there's unresolved anger in our lives. And then we talked about this. We all, not only that, we harm our fellowship with God. And what he's saying is that if you choose not to forgive, that's what's going to happen. But if you do, you're going to refresh so many others. There's going to be a legacy that's going to happen in your life. For some of us, if we would choose to forgive, we'll have that same kind of joy that Zamperini could have in his life. Why? Because forgiveness changes us. It changes us. It sets us free. It makes us different. It impacts those who are in our lives. I said this a couple of weeks ago on Father's Day, and I just want to say it again because I think that we need to hear it again. I said it on Father's Day to fathers, but I would say it to dads and to moms today. Do we realize that we have the power through Jesus Christ that now lives in us to change the course and the direction of our children's lives and their destiny by our acts of forgiveness towards others who have, who have hurt us in our past? And rather than subjecting them to a toxic, bitter environment, we now have the choice to end a cycle of bitterness that has been in many of our families for many, many years. I said it on Father's Day. I say it today. It can end with you. Amen. It can stop right now. The generational curse that has been happening in your family can stop right now today with you as you are set free. Just like Zamperini. Just like Philemon. If bitterness is something that you clearly see has been a pattern in your family's life, why not break that generational curse through God's power? We become a blessing to others. We become this legacy. We leave a legacy of joy and peace and forgiveness rather than bitterness. Here's the other thing we see thirdly is that I realize this. I'm motivated when I realize that I am called to acts of obedience. I'm called to obedience in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 21. I am confident that as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. And what was it that he was asking? He's saying, I want you to remember the mandate that Christ has given to forgive. 
He said, I'm, I'm reminding you of this. I'm confident that you're going to be grown up enough in the Lord to follow through with what you know Christ has commanded you to do. You're going to be set free. And what did Christ command? That we forgive and that there's no limit. That it's 70 times 7. We keep offering. We take them off of our hook. Put them on to God's. Off of our hook. Put them on to God's. Right? Notice he says, I'm confident that you'll do what I ask. And I think it's really interesting that he says, and even more. What could the even more be? Speculating. But what if it's when he comes back, he's no longer coming back as a slave. But what if you welcomed him as a son? What if when he comes back, you welcome him as the prodigal and you throw, you throw the robe of, of the family around him? What if it's that you put the family ring on his hand and you kill the fattened calf? What if it's that you throw a party over him? I'm confident you're going to do more than what I've even just said. We don't know if that's what happened, but, but what if he says, I know that you love Christ enough that you're going to do the right thing. And Christ commands us to forgive and his commands are not burdensome is what John says Here's the fourth thing that we see. Paul says, we're motivated to forgive. I realize when I realize this, that there actually is an accountability that I am to have with spiritual leaders who are in my life. God puts pastors in our lives and elders in our lives and spiritual leaders in our lives and life group leaders that there's accountability with these individuals. And so he's going to he's going to mention this in verse 22. Okay, now he's going to be he's going to be. Very unsubtle about his coming, but there's a subtlety to it that he's going to say that I'll point out in a second. Look at verse 22. One more thing, he says. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me. Here's what he's saying. For I am hoping that God will answer your prayers as I know you're praying for me to be released from my chains. I know that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. He's saying, Philemon, I'm encouraging you to do all this. And by the way... I'm coming to check up on you. I'm going to come, and whenever I come, I'm going to ask what's going on. How are you and Onesimus? How are things in the church in Colossae? Can you imagine Philemon going, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do this. Can you imagine his encounter with the Apostle Paul at that point? Would not have been a very pleasant thing. Okay, And he's saying, I'm, you're spiritually accountable to me. I've, I've, I've been one who has discipled you in your life. And he's saying, I'm coming, and you need that accountability. And the bottom line is we all need accountability. We all need spiritual leadership in our lives where people will call us out whenever maybe there's something that's not right. Or we have blind spots in our life that we can't see. And yet God has has provided maybe spiritual leadership in your life or pastors in your life to speak truth in love into your life. And what Paul is saying is, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you because I'm a spiritual leader in your life. And I'm going to be checking up on you. I'm going to be asking how this situation went. And this is something that's a principle that's found all throughout the scriptures. And we as, who are spiritual leaders, we are to, to lead and we are to bring correction when we need to bring correction and speak the truth in love and we're to encourage and do all those kinds of things. But, but here's the thing. We do that with a serving spirit. And Hebrews speaks about this. He says, the, the author of Hebrews says, obey your spiritual leaders. In other words, follow the truth that they are bringing in your life and do what they say. Their work, their work is to watch over your souls and, and this is a sobering thought for any who is, is, a, is a leader here. They are accountable to God. You're accountable to them. They're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not sorrow. 
And the author there is saying, he's saying whenever you get along with each other, when you follow the principles of God, it's, it's less burdensome for your pastors who are seeking to lead you uh, in this particular way. And he says, in fact, that would not certainly be to your benefit. And so Jesus is our chief shepherd over our church. Jesus is our senior pastor, okay? And we have pastors that follow Jesus in this sense. And I thought of it like this this week. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and then he has us as under-shepherds, and we're kind of like the sheepdogs, okay? And we're going around the flock, and we're trying to bring those maybe that are struggling in, in certain areas, and we're trying to come along, and sometimes there's correction in that, but it's to keep the flock together and to, and to enforce those kinds of principles because those principles bring us freedom, all right? So I was just thinking about that, that, that we are accountable to our spiritual leaders. And here's another thing. I realize, and I'm motivated to forgive when I realize that I am responsible. I'm responsible and accountable to other believers. And that's what you're going to see next. I actually have a responsibility to the body of Christ. I do not act alone and independently. I may think that I'm acting independently, but I am a part of a body if I am a believer. I am a part of the body of Christ. And so this is what Paul says in verse 23. He says, I'm coming. And then he says in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and my co-workers. Well, who are these guys? He's mentioning them, and it's not just this ending, and it doesn't really mean anything. When we read it, every word of God is inspired by God, even the names that are in there. He's saying, you know these guys. These guys know you. They were guys who were in Philemon's life. You are a part of the body of Christ. They send your greetings. They know why I'm writing this letter. You're accountable to them, but also this. You are a leader in that Colossian church. You are responsible for others. He's saying, you've got to step up. You've got to grow. You've got to be the kind of man that these men are looking to. And you will set a bad example for those in the Colossian church, as well as your fellow believers that I'm mentioning here, should you not lead out and forgive in this particular way. And when we choose to stay in our bitterness, here's what we're doing. We're not only hurting ourselves, we are fracturing the fellowship of all that this church can be. I said this in every service. I want to say this to you. Do we believe and want this place to be a refuge for broken people within our community to come in, right? People with hurts and baggage and all kinds of things that have happened that are bad in their lives, and they can come here and find healing in their lives. We want that, right, Eagles View? We want them here. We welcome them here because Christ does. This is to be a hospital for people who are hurting and who are sick. We want that. Now, here's what this is going to mean. Those people, as they come in, need you to be well. Right? Amen? It's time that some of us get well so that we can start pouring in to those that are going to be coming behind you. We need to get well. We need to get healthy. As you get more healthy, God's going to entrust more broken people to us. And if you won't get healthy, then we're going to stop growing because God's not going to give us more. We've got to get well so that we can have a responsible kind of leadership and in others' lives. God wants you well because he wants you to have a powerful impact on the people who are out in this community. Not just leave it to a few. 
but to get yourself well so that you can start pouring into their lives and modeling before the broken who come in here that it is possible for God to do a work in your life and in their life just as he did in yours. They need to see that it's possible in you and to see the hope that God has given you just like Zamparini gives us hope, right? Okay? Now here's the final thing. That I'm motivated to forgive whenever I realize this. That I am actually empowered by God's grace and His Spirit. I'm actually empowered to do this. Karen, our business administrator, we were talking this week about this. And just talking about how hard sometimes it really is to forgive. It's hard. It's hard to do this. And, and how a lot of times we just we don't feel like it. Remember, it's not a feeling. It's a choice. We don't feel like it. It's hard to ever feel like we could get to the place of forgiving some of the folks that have hurt us and the way that they've hurt us. And I know some of you have been hurt greatly. I can't even understand the ways that some of you have been hurt. Karen and I were talking this week, and Karen just shared this wisdom with me. And she said, you know, that's whenever, whenever I'm at that place, I have to realize that that is where I must go to God and say, God, I am asking you and inviting you to put that supernatural power and forgiveness in my life for that person because I just don't have it. Can I say that about every one of us? We don't have it in us. This is not in our flesh to do this. This is a supernatural thing of God. And Paul is saying to him, you have the grace. I'm praying for you that you have the grace in your spirit to carry all of these things out that I've talked about. He says this, may the grace. In fact, I'm going to invite you to read it with me out loud. Verse 25, the last part of that. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your what? Spirit. May his grace and his power, may it empower you to carry this out. You don't have to do this on your own. God's going to give you what you need. I told Karen whenever she told me that, and I just said, that's so powerful to hear that. I told her this, there could not be a prayer that's more in alignment with the will of God than that particular one right there. You want to know what the will of God is? That's God's will for you. God is glad to answer that prayer when you say, give me that power, God, to forgive because it's in his will. It's in his will for you to have that power. One of the things we've done today, just in closing, is we've kind of put just a a resource, a tool that's in your bulletin. You can take them out and we won't go through this, but I want you to see it, okay? It's just a little tool and it's just prayers of forgiveness. Because... What's going to happen is you're going to leave this place and you're going to be dealing and grappling with these kinds of things. And you most likely, really, we've just kind of just touched on this. You're going to have to start doing the work of forgiveness. You're going to come to a place of how do I do this and how do I pray this? And, and, and these are just some models. You don't have to pray these exact words, but this is just kind of a model and how to do this. And it reminds you of what forgiveness is and what it's not and what you're doing and And then there's this part of restoring your fellowship with God where you ask God's forgiveness. Because I'm just going to tell you, if you have been living in bitterness, you have been broken in fellowship with God. And God desires for you to be in deep fellowship with Him again. And there's just a great prayer to kind of lead you through that and knowing how to restore that again. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your fellowship with God. Being close to him again, walking with him again, understanding this more again. And we've just given this to you, and we just encourage you to use this. So those are the motives of forgiveness. They're powerful. You can forgive by the power of God's grace who forgave you. And now that's the end of the book in Philemon, but that's not the end of the story. 
the end of the book, we, we don't know for sure. Um, now, we would say this. We don't know for sure exactly what happened. But, but Philemon most likely, and, and many Bible scholars believe this, forgave Onesimus or this book wouldn't be in the Bible. It's there. If, they, if it was in the Bible and he didn't forgive, then it would be setting Philemon up to be this great godly leader and he didn't even do what Paul instructed him to do. So he, he most likely forgave Onesimus, okay? Now, here's an interesting side note. What is his name? Onesimus means what? Useful. Philemon extends forgiveness to him. Church history tells us this. Many Bible scholars believe this, that there was a pastor that went to pastor the church at Ephesus. And do you know what his name was? Onesimus. And I want you to think of the power of forgiveness. Do we know for sure it was him? We don't know for sure. But many Bible scholars believe that useful was now being useful for the kingdom of God at the church at Ephesus. And there's power in forgiveness in your life and in the lives of your family. Let's pray together about that. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to take off of your hook of justice? And through a faith and act and choice and faith in who God is sovereignly, place them onto his hook and release that debt in your life. Would you just begin just to ask God just to give you that power? Just, man, I just don't have it in me. You're right. We don't. But God, would you give us the power to carry that out? God, would you just begin to set us free today? We need to be well. We need to be whole. Our families need us whole, Lord. We don't want to live in torment any longer, tormenting ourselves with our past and who has hurt us. God, would you just set us free as we forgive? I thank you for the grace of Jesus in my own life. And Lord, our church, these people, we thank you for your grace in their lives. Lord, for many of us, bitterness has weighed us down far too long and we have been toxic Christians. And our hearts have been hard. We have been unmerciful. Would you just begin to do a work in our lives and remove those calluses on our hearts. Remove that that toxic stuff that's in our hearts, Lord, of bitterness. And begin to fill it again with your love. Lord, the same kind of love that Zamperini had where he could forgive the man who did all those horrible things to him. We know that same kind of love and forgiveness is available to us today. We want to leave a legacy of love and forgiveness, not one of bitterness, God. Would you just set us free? Same kind of power, Lord, that Stephen had when they were throwing rocks at him, killing him, and he said, Father, forgive them. Echoing the very words of Jesus before his crucifiers when he said, Father, forgive them canceling the debt. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you for your principles that have been given to us, God. Not to weigh us down, but to release us and make us free. Would you unburden us today? Would you minister to hearts that are really deeply hurting today, Father? And bring healing to them and life change. 
It is in Jesus' powerful name that I pray.